0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. So good morning, everybody. Welcome to Festival of Place Bite Size. My name is Christine Murray. I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Developer and the Director of the Festival of Place. This is my kitchen. And uh, it's really my pleasure to have you guys in it this morning with me. Um, we're a small independent company. We run a podcast and a website, we make a magazine, and we host the annual Festival of Place, which is taking place this year on the 13th of November. And our ambition is to bring people together to unpick what makes places worth living in and cities where people thrive. Our journalism, our podcast, events like this are free, but if you like what, you, what we do, if you like what we do, then please support us on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the developer UK. And um, if you support us uh, on one of our um, tiers, uh, then you'll get our um, really beautiful magazine, which we've just published and we're going to be sending out um, over the next couple of weeks. So, Festival of Place Bite Size is a taster of our main event, uh, the Festival of Place, which normally takes place in July, but this year is taking place in November. Um, and Professor Nick Tyler, who's with us this morning, was actually one of our speakers last year, a really popular one. So, um, we've recently reduced our ticket prices, so um, check that out. And that's at festivalofplace.co.uk. Uh, our next bite size event after this one. Uh, So marketing your calendar is in association with you and I think in London 3.0, and that's with Kwame Kwe arma in conversation with Patricia Brown, director of Central, about his vision for the future of London. Uh, So uh, most of you will know about Kwame, he's the Uh, Director of the Young um, Vic, Artistic Director of the Young Vic Theatre and an actor and journalist and broadcaster. And we're really interested to hear what he believes about the future of our cities. But this morning, we're going to be thinking about how we should shape our urban spaces going forward so that we can return to being social animals um, safely. So it's my pleasure, pleasure to be hosting Professor Nick Tyler, Director of the UCL Center for Transport Studies and Chadwick Professor of Engineering for this talk on physical distancing and sociality in urban space and Nick is going to speak for around 30 minutes which will be followed by a Q&A session so as they come to you you can type your questions or vote someone else's questions up uh, in the Q&A tab which is at the bottom in your zoom control bar after the talk in the Q&A and throughout the session we'll be sharing a link for a post-talk meetup which will be in a separate Zoom meeting so we can all see each other's faces. Uh, And we'll be breaking into smaller groups for a bit of serendipitous chat for those of us who would like to network um, after the event. Uh, We also have a poll that will pop up at some point during the talk with a couple of questions, which we'd welcome you to answer. We'll share the results with you here um, just to kind of get the neurons firing this morning. Uh so as I said Nick was one of our most popular speakers at the festival last year where he talked he challenged the audience to design a bench that would encourage people to speak to each other um and his research investigates the ways in which people interact with their immediate environments changing the very definition of engineering by working with neuroscientists psychologists architects education and data analysts to discover how people navigate in the urban environment Nick's research sometimes looks into common functions such as walking in order to understand how we can better design our cities to make the environment more sympathetic to people's needs. Um, And he's currently been telling me about some work he's doing with Transport for London on making us feel safer and breathe easier on London's buses. Uh, So I'm going to pass it over to you, Nick. I have to do a slight technical um, jiggle here and then uh, do say good morning.
1: Okay, well, good morning, everybody. (laughs) Is that working, Christine?
0: That's right, everyone can see in here, Nick, I think,
1: yeah, great. Okay, so, well, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Christine, for that uh, introduction. Very happy to be here and and to share some sort of thoughts that I've had around the kind of thing we've been doing for the last few years, but actually, COVID, as we'll see, COVID has made a big difference to that um, in the the very, very immediate terms. So I'm going to talk a little bit about where urban space and design has, has come from over the last 50, 60 years as a starter. So to do that, we need to sort of think about this concept uh, of physical distancing. And that was originally conceived in the 1960s by an anthropologist called Edward Hall, who observed people in New York City and sort of saw that they were they kind of separated themselves between people according to different sorts of functions that they were doing. So whether they were chatting or moving about or whatever. And he recorded these, and he created this idea of of proxemics, which is effectively what he called the science of proximity. But basically, it's about how people choose to to locate themselves relative to each other when they're sort of kind of doing their daily stuff. And he divided these into sort of four Concepts. One was the public distance where you could sort of see what was going on in the the public world. Uh, One was the social distance where you started to begin to engage with people. The personal distance where you would have conversations with people. And the intimate distance that only very particular people would enter into that. And he set um, distances based on his observations in New York. And these are kind of... uh, Displayed rather like this, so around about up to about eight i mean don 't take the distances too literally, but around about up to eight meters is what he would call the public distance. You can see um, things happening, but you weren't, you might not be able to tell whether somebody is um, smiling or scowling, but you would just be beginning to be able to do that on the other hand, um, the personal distance, for example within between about half a meter and maybe one and a quarter meters, you are actually able to have a conversation. So we started to look at why those distances mattered. So if we start with the public distance, at the public distance, you can see that somebody uh, is a person. You can see, you may even be able to recognize who they are, and you might then be able to choose the kind of response that you're going to make. Are you going to say something? Are you going to ignore them? Are you going to do something? And so for a point of reference, eight meters is about the width of, um, a residential street, give that so you can see somebody on the other side of the street, for example, and have that kind of conversation. and the test of this is essentially somebody you don't know as opposed to somebody that you do. And this is a kind of phase that we think of as being you're identifying somebody. you, you know, is this a person you can trust? Is it a person that you are scared of? that kind of thing. If you go to the social distance, that's sort of between about you know, one and a quarter and three meters. You can, now you can definitely recognize the person. Um, you can infer their mood. You might see that they're smiling or not. Um, and you can make some kind of response. And that is the beginning of greeting. Um, so you know that this is a person you wish to greet or that you don't. And you can make that decision then. And you come down to the personal distance, which is essentially, these, these are people that you know and you're going to have a conversation with. And this is kind of the chat. And interestingly, for various reasons, you find that the number of people that you can have in that range is actually a relatively small number, maybe three or four. and um, But it won't very often be more than that. And so you get this kind of idea of conversation. So we've started to look at why people were separating themselves into these kind of thresholds. If you go into intimate distance, again, that you're only really going to be very familiar with somebody at that distance And generally speaking, we admit very few people into this distance. And if you don't invite somebody into that space, um, actually, that's an act of aggression. And this is perhaps what we would call about embracing. And we need to sort of think about this. Um, It's interesting that culturally, we often think uh, certain cultures tend to be quite far apart and other cultures tend to be quite close together. But actually, what we're looking at here is something that that refers more to the initial greeting process, Some cultures will greet by bowing, others by shaking hands, others by hugging. There are very different distances being set up. But the actual conversation will be in the personal space. So there is a sort of kind of uh, way in which these are a bit more flexible than we think. And proxemics, essentially, um, after Hall and other other people in, in, in the United States and elsewhere, these are basically influenced urban design ever since. This is sort of kind of, and in, in particular, in the last 15-20 um, years, where um, people have taken that much more on board as we've tried to create spaces for people. Um, but the real issue about proxemics is something that Hall sort of assumed, but didn't really um, figure out, I think, was that actually the distances that people were choosing to do these activities actually are manifestations of their social desire. That it's socially good to have a conversation, and it's difficult to have that conversation at three metres. Um, it's much easier to have it at 1.2 metres. So the distant, the physical distance people were choosing was actually to express a social space. And a major influence on that design uh, and that principle of the social space has been Jan Gehl and Jan Gehl is a Danish architect working out of Copenhagen and and over the several years has been really pushing the idea that we need to make cities that are good places for people uh, to live, to meet, to enjoy, to thrive and so on. And instead of actually designing cities as places that you want to push traffic through, or create parking or those sorts of things, which was very much the the feeling around the 1960s and 70s. Um, Gale was very influential in shifting that sense of feeling away from simply accommodating traffic in cities and placing people at the centre. And he basically felt that you wanted to, or feels that you wanted to design places that people want to linger in. So linger is a really really cool word because linger... um, a lot of languages don't really have words for linga, but linga means staying in a place longer than you intended. And that sense of lingering, that you can just take a bit more time, a bit more um, opportunity to do things, that is actually really important for the quality of social space. He also looked at the informality, the, the informal greetings and conversations that people have, rather than the sort of set-piece kind of stuff. He also wanted people to feel that they owned the space, and out of ownership of that space or the sense of ownership of that space comes the concept of um, responsibility for it. Um, so the two, two sides of the same coin, as it were. And also that one of the big important things that the, that the designer had to do was to make interactions easier, make it easier for people to have informal interactions, particularly with people that they don't know. People that they do know, that's relatively simple. but people that don't know each other, that becomes easier and it's that sense that gives um, the city the sense of openness um, and sociality that we are looking for. He said uh, on many occasions that he always found that Copenhagen um, had streets that were comfortable to walk along and he maintained that this was because the shop widths were about six meters and as a result that the, as you walk past the shops um, you've got to change your visual stimulus every six meters or so. Um, and that he then said that that is around about four seconds. Actually, I think it might be a little bit more than that, but it's, it's, it's around four seconds to get that kind of um, change of stimulus that, that made it feel comfortable, made it feel that things were working. So a long brick wall that looks the same all the way along is a very tedious kind of place to be. And it feels quite threatening. Whereas a series of small shops is actually something which feels more comfortable. And he maintained that this was something to do with the speed at which people walked um, and the distance between the shops. So the windows would change and that just made it feel comfortable. Um, we've looked a little bit into that. Why is four seconds such an important thing? Why does that seem to be the case? Um, well, we've had a look a bit at that. But one of the things that brings that up is, I think, the secret to it, um, to keep it sort of reasonably short, the, the secret of this is actually about social spacing. And social spacing is... Uh, if you like, what was if if you remember driving that proxenics idea of the physical distancing was derived by the social spacing that people desired. And that is interesting because it's kind of based on time rather than space. So we don't think about space socially in terms of distance, we think about it in terms of time. And when I say think, I don't necessarily mean consciously because actually if you're having a conversation with somebody, you're not particularly thinking about how many meters apart you are from them, but actually how much you can see, how many of their, how easy it is to hear their conversation, how many of the micro gestures that people make as part of a conversation you can pick up and so on. So actually that's about how fast it is, how long it takes to process that kind of information. And interestingly, um, the, the speed with which your pre-conscious brain processes things like vision, visual stimulus, or hearing and an oral stimulus is very different. So vision stimuli get processed um, in around about 200 milliseconds or so, but oral stimuli are processed way faster than that, about four seconds. And that's actually really interesting because it means that up to a distance of about 10 meters, you are responding pre-consciously, so your brain cortex is responding faster to sound than it is to vision. And we think light travels much faster than sound, and indeed it does. But actually your ability to process information kicks off with being able to pick up that oral stimulus faster than you can pick up the visual stimulus. And that means that in that distance, actually sound is actually really important. It's sound that tells you things, not necessarily vision. Vision will tell you you things, but the fastest response is to sound. That's why you have conversations at those kinds of distances. And our human voice is based around having that kind of conversation at that kind of distance. And that means that we can start to think about how those distances, those proxemic distances, actually feel in terms of time. So if you imagine two people at these distances and they're walking towards each other, they will get from the public identify kind of distance to, let's say, a chat kind of distance in about four or five seconds. From that social distance so along the way, the greeting thing, it'll take about one between one and three seconds. just depends on the speed of walking. And that kind of chat distance becomes a much, much faster affair in terms of how that's actually working and how we're actually able to, to coincide. So the person walking along the street, greeting somebody, that's the kind of time that action takes. It, a roundabout four to five seconds. So it's just sort of bear that in mind. Why? Well, it's interesting that the, the brain, the neurons in the brain aggregate information in chunks. That's kind of how we understand the world. And those chunks, it depends, it varies a bit from person to person, but those chunks are around three to four seconds. So why does a grandfather clock say tick tock? It's interesting, every language in the world that I can think of says that a grandfather clock says something like this. It might be tick-tock in English, but it might be tic-tac in Spanish, for example. Um, why do we think, first of all, that those two sounds are different? And why do we actually make those two sounds sound different when we, when we say them? Actually, the sound themselves is identical. Um, we... But what happens is that the brain, it aggregates information, so it aggregates ticks or tocks, and brings them together into clumps of three or four seconds, and it needs that clump of three or four seconds to realize that this is actually a regular continuing sound. And the brain then says, oh, this is a regular um, uh, repeating sound, so one must be more important than the other, so we'll say that that is a tick. And Therefore, you get your sense of a rhythm every second or so, that the grandfather clock is ticking. Actually, one feels louder, or stronger than the other. Everybody will say that. We even express it in the way we describe it in language. But actually, the two sounds are identical. The brain has imposed that in order to make sense of its neuronal aggregation. And the neuronal, neuronal aggregation is around about four seconds. So it's actually enabling you to compose the world. And if you have... Sounds which f- happen further apart than that, then it doesn't make sense. They feel random. And if you have sounds that go much, much shorter than that, then you don't see so much significance between them. So the little alarm clock, for example, doesn't say tick-tock, it says tick, 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 tick. And and therefore, and that's the way the brain is actually imposing information on the oral stimulus at a preconscious level. This is not something you think about. This is what your brain does before you start thinking about things. So sociality is essentially the propensity for somebody to interact freely with people they don't know. Um, this was crucial to the survival of Homo sapiens in, in the savannah when food became much more scarce and you had to, had to collaborate with people to be able to capture food. And, and Homo sapiens, almost alone amongst the hominids, was much better at that kind of process. And that's kind of why we survived the last ice age. And so that's why we're here. So sociality is kind of embedded in us. And we've kind of lost it a bit in in urban space at the moment. We did some studies a few years ago looking at how often or what it was that people thought the city could do that would improve their sense of well being. And what were the sort of kind of characteristics of the city that gave them the sense of a better well being. And to some surprise. The thing that came out pretty much at the top of that list was this sense of um, being able to greet somebody you didn't know and receive a sort of positive response. Um, and I remember thinking when this came out, it's a bit odd. I mean, I thought, you know, well-being would be good health or maybe income or something like that. And then I recalled some work we did in Colombia um, a few years ago when we were looking at a city that had real issues about governance. And the, they basically the government of the city had been taken over by drug traffickers and they ruled the world and they had a supremely high homicide rate. Um, in a year, they may have had maybe 15,000 homicides in a year. So it's a huge number of people dying. You didn't trust other people to say hello to because they might shoot you. And so in order to change that city from that state to a more um, reasonable state, um, the mayor realised that before you did anything else with urban design or any other anything else at all, you had to get the people to trust each other. You had to have that sense of sociality that enables people to feel that somebody coming on the street, you can make a judgement, and the more that that judgement is that those people are friends rather than foe, the more sociable your city is going to be. And that is kind of what gave rise to this this sort of idea of sociality. And remember, that those distances are about just a few metres, eight, ten metres or whatever. So what has actually happened with COVID is sort of interesting because COVID has kind of separated the question of the physical distancing that Hall observed and the social spacing that we are inherently looking for. And so... And the particular issue comes with the famous distance of two meters. So in the UK and some other countries, the expectation is that people will maintain a separation of about two meters. And that separation actually means that some things become more difficult. So at two meters distance, it's harder to speak. You can speak, but you have to raise your voice. And that you can only do at relatively short chunks. So phrases and sentences become shorter because you have to speak them louder. You may have to speak them more slowly. And so although you know a typical line of Shakespeare, if there is such a thing, lasts somewhere between three and four seconds if you read it, if you had to proclaim it, it would last longer. And that means it's harder to aggregate and harder to see what's going on. It's harder to see the facial micro gestures that may tell you something as basic as this is a far sound as opposed to a bar sound. Or it might be those micro signals that tell you that you are kind of agreeing or not agreeing that this is a received idea or a not received idea that sense when somebody isn't quite engaging with what you're saying is because those micro features are not giving you the signal that they are and that is something which becomes very important in conversation hence the distance becomes important and we've we've looked at this a number of times in a number of um, experiments. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those in a minute. But one of the key things that happens is if it's harder to talk and it's harder to receive information from somebody else in that informal way, then we are losing sociality. And that is a serious business for a city. So what did people do? When they were separated by two meters, well, they need the sociality because it's kind of in our genes, and so they did other things. So, Italians sang from balconies, of course, singing projects the voice much more than speaking, but they were singing from balconies because that was a kind of communal expression of sociality. The clapping, even in the UK, we were clapping at one time at least, we were clapping for the NHS, but actually, that was another, it wasn't really about clapping for the NHS, it was actually about a communal act which where people were coming together. And as people felt more uncomfortable with that idea, so it kind of dribbled away. And those, that's an expression of that desire for sociality that would normally be expressed by being able to have these informal conversations with people, actually not being possible because of the distancing. So there is great pressure to revert to social spacing because that's kind of where we're made. And that's one of the reasons why, in many cases, it's proving difficult to maintain the sense of lockdown, the sense of social of this physical distance requirement in the street. And so, we need to sort of think about that urban space. It kind of needs to be social. So this is a picture of Havana in Cuba. And in Havana, they couldn't buy concrete to make um, bollards um, because of the the sanctions, and so. Um, when they wanted to pedestrianise the city centre, they, they looked around for things to sort of stop traffic from going into the city centre. And they couldn't have concrete bollards, which is probably what we would do. They found loads of 18th century British bronze naval cannons. And those cannons, when, they, when you put a cannon nose down into the ground, Rigidly and far enough so it's rigid to prevent traffic from coming in. It turns out to be a great space for people to lean on, and you'll see guys in the middle of that picture leaning on this cannon. And the and what happens around that so that parks them around the cannon. And what you actually see there are groups of people having conversations, chats and things like that, twos and threes and fours um, doing that. So that cannon, which is marking out a, a boundary, has become A social space. And that social space means that the boundary between the pedestrianized city centre and the trafficked outer side of the city centre actually becomes a, a frontier for people. It's an engagement of people that creates the boundary, not a lot of bronze or concrete or something else. And that's really because people want this space to be social. What we don't want it to be necessarily is intimate. So the peak hour on the tube system is always very difficult. This is a picture of an experiment in my laboratory where we were, were helping London Underground with designing the new tube for London. And one of the issues there is about getting on and off the train, and that's what we built. So we built a mock-up of the, the current projection for the design of the new tube for London and we were testing that with people getting on and off in various forms but what you'll notice is the distance between these people is relatively small they're not necessarily engaging with each other they're just simply just trying to get out of the train as fast as possible or into it as quickly as possible Um, and actually this is not a particularly pleasant space very few people would see the peak hour tube system as as a pleasant space and and that is because it's too crowded, too pressured, the time thing is, we've got to get to work, there are all of these kind of pressures on us. So how do we design this space to be able to be a social space, but not that either intimate or aggressive space that we that we tend to find? And that means we have to change our principles a bit. How do we design from the personal out, instead of thinking, I need to design city, design this square, or I need to design this street, and then think about what people can do in it. Maybe we should design from the people in. So how do we design for people to linger, to chat and enjoy? Interestingly, during COVID, a number of places around the world have taken the opportunity to increase the space for pedestrians and decrease it for traffic. And that's one of the reasons for doing that is because actually people needed that for the the physical distancing, but actually it's better. And the interesting thing will be, can we actually maintain that in the future world as, as the pandemic recedes but COVID remains? Can we design, in other words, for sociality? So how do we design sociality with something like street furniture? That's one of the things that we have at our disposal. Now here's a range of pictures from, the, from our laboratory talking about different kinds of things that we can deal with because we can create different environments in that laboratory and test people in them. So Um, trains stations can we make shared space actually shareable Um, how do we instrument people to find out what's going on in their brain in their body while they are interacting with others and with with uh, stimuli from the environment can we think about making the footway healthier what happens if it's a little bit softer nearer to grass in substance rather than concrete which is hard and unpleasant and we're not evolved for what about hearing and the ability to hear and how important that is. So by helping um, people to hear better in restaurants, we can start to make restaurants more accessible for people with hearing impairments by figuring out how do we manage the noise in a restaurant so that people can actually hear better. How do we remember where things are in space and where we put them back? Big issue there for how the brain sees things like roots. What do we do about designing that furniture like bus stops? Take something really prosaic and boring about a bus stop. Maybe there's interesting things you can do with that. The one on the right of those ones on the bottom row, that one's about making a musical bus stop. The bench on there plays a tune if you sit on it. If somebody else comes to sit on it, it will play another part of the tune. So by coordinating sitting on it, you can start to um, create more of a melody. And therefore people began to do that. We had people on that bus stop for four and a half hours enjoying that interaction with people they didn't know participation very important how do we understand what people see as sociality for them means thinking differently about how we gain information from them all of this is stuff behind all of these things is massive science and how we actually create that we can put that into an environment this is a render of the new laboratory we're building now called pearl person environment activity research laboratory where we can study all this together create environments change the lighting, change the noise, change the smell. How do we actually then measure what people are doing and ask them and how do they feel and all these kinds of things, so that we can understand what sociality is. Benches. Benches are really cool. Why do we have straight benches? Because nobody really likes a straight bench. Curved bench is actually much more human because it means that you can actually, if you sit on the inside of it, you can face a bit nearer to being facing towards people if you sit on the outside, you'll be facing away. How curved is the curve? Does the curve have to be? It can't be too curved because that becomes too threatening, but it can be slightly curved. And that's because we can start to go back into these social distances and getting the social distances right so that we can actually see a group more easily in a curved bench than we can on a straight bench. And if you don't believe me, here we are on the left, Nicosia, curved benches, people are able to engage in a conversation on the inside, they can do their emails on the outside. The bench in Copenhagen is a straight bench, people trying to have a conversation, but you can see what they're trying to do, what they're having to do to have that conversation is actually to curve around, but it's actually very uncomfortable to curve around on a straight bench. If the bench was curved about that much, it would be a much easier and simpler thing to do. What is COVID doing to the urban space? Well, I showed you the thing about people gathering in it. It's, it's saying that social distance is driven by the neurophysical psychological activity, not by just our conscious desire. What the proxemics, although proxemics suggests that physical is the same as social, actually COVID has shown that they're not, that's just happenstance. And how we actually maintain that essential sociality when The physical distance that we're required to be in makes it difficult. That applies to spaces inside as well as outside. So educational environments, university laboratories uh, or classrooms, performance venues. We're doing some very interesting work with places with performance venues who wonder what an audience is going to be like. Hospital outpatients departments. How do you deal with crowded places like that? Stations, airports, buses, the design of buses, trains, taxis, aircraft. These places where public come together but in a confined space What about public meetings? And what does that then lead into in terms of the democratic spaces and processes? How is the House of Parliament working at the moment? And how is that actually dealing with issues around social spacing and democracy? Interesting question. And then what do we learn from all this? Well, we've got a huge number of challenges to create that urban space that, people feel is safe for them, both from each other, but also in light of COVID. How do we actually create that social distancing, social cohesion with physical distancing? How do we actually change the science and the thinking and the processing of all of that knowledge and thoughts into something which encourages sociality? And we think that the laboratory that we're building here actually is maybe unique in the sense of being the place where we can actually do that research at scale. We can build a station in there, we can build a street in there and see how people respond to differences in that design. When's that gonna happen? Well, we're building it, this is this morning. Um, We're building that, it'll be open next year for people to come in, experience, try out, explore, do the science and have fun. Thank you very much.
0: There's been a lot of um, talk in the chat about how interested everyone um, has been in some of the things you're talking about. So I know they're putting their questions into the Q&A, so I'm going to put them into you. But we haven't launched our poll yet, so I'm going to launch that now. But I think it'd be worth saying a bit about the questions that we're asking. So one of them is around the office. And you were quite interested in how people wanted to work going forward. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, homeworking through COVID and, and the office?
1: itself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Um, we've been trying to get uh, spread out the peak hour for 40 or 50 years, because the peak hour is so awful. And that's never really quite worked to get people to start work at different times, because employers in particular require them to be in work for certain times. What I think has happened in COVID, though, is employers have learned that actually, you know, people who you would not normally think of as being able to work, do their job from home, actually have been doing their job from home. And therefore, maybe that's opened up the idea of how do we actually space out the office day? Do we, do we do some of the day at home and some of the day in the office where we need to meet people? Or do we spend a couple of days in the week at home and a few days in the week where meeting people in the office? How do people feel about that kind of choice that there's, for many, been the first time they've experienced that kind of thing during the lockdown?
0: And the second question I put on there is something else we spoke about in our kind of pre-talk chat, which was around that short walk to one shop. I mean, you talked to me about how in France everybody had a local bakery, um, but what would you have in the UK? What would you have in that short walk? So do you want to talk a bit about your ideas around um, around sociality and the high street?
1: Okay. So again, this is a very simplistic picture, but Essentially, in, in France, bread has two characteristics, well, three characteristics. The first one is it's a fundamental part of the French diet. Second is um, it is price capped. So a bâton um, costs 1 euro 20 at the moment. And the third thing is it is regulated so that it cannot have preservatives in it. Um, and what that means is that bread does not last very long on a shelf. And so people buy bread very often, three or four times a day. And... That means that um, there are an awful lot of bakeries in cities and towns in in France. And uh, therefore, this is a shop you tend to walk to. But we've asked people in Latin America, uh, when we've been talking about social space and and design of of cities and things um, and communities, is what is it you would like to go to kind of every day? Um, Because if we can put those things within walking distance, then you will start to walk. And once you've walked to the first thing, you might walk to the second and so on. And so what are the, so it's quite an interesting question. And it does vary a lot um, from one place to another as to what is it that you would really like to go to often that you would, if it were put near to you, sufficiently near to you, you would walk there. And bakery is a good example, but there are many other things that it could be.
0: So I'm going to close the poll now because we've got, Two hundred and fifty-seven responses, and you can you can have a look at that. I'll pop up for you in a second here. So, uh, oh, I, I got the last couple of people putting in their votes, and oh, they've started speeding up. I'm going to let you answer a question because now everyone's voting. So, um, one question that's happened uh, that's come up a couple of times in the Q and A so far is around online working, this digital pivot that we've all done, and uh, so sociality and the digital space. Which actually, I I'm not sure you really got in got into too much um so there's questions around us holding our phones having earphones in that kind of thing but then also um being online as we work more and more and zoom and network digitally what 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 is the digital human in this mm.
1: i think it's very interesting i mean i think i mean we are obviously working in the digital space now and um i think it is very interesting how People are responding to that. And it's interesting what seems to work and what doesn't seem to work. So, for example, I find uh, Zoom reasonably good. So we get a reasonably good image. um, uh, Fatal to say it usually works, fingers crossed. (laughs) Um, But um, it's a reasonably good image and so on. I find Microsoft Teams very, very imposing and difficult because Microsoft Teams suddenly demands that I pay attention to it. And it says, so-and-so has uh, notified you of this meeting. You have just been made a member of some team, which I have no idea what it is, and things like that. So it's much more dictatorial. And, and to me, the sense of the two of them is very different. And the difference is, that, to me, is a kind of digital representation of sociality. It's about what somebody else thinks about my availability for time. And um, And I think it's a sort of digital version of that. And I'd be interested to see what, uh, to hear what, what people feel about that. And is how much is the online thing a um, an imposition? Um, everybody I can think of, if I had meetings at, towards the end of the day, everybody is tired. They all say it's exhausting having all these meetings on screen. Why? Well, we have to work much harder. Your eyes aren't used to keeping into this very narrow focal screen of a few centimetres by a few centimetres. They're used to looking in a 200 degree... 220 degree circle and and I think and we, we're used to looking in three dimensions and not two and all of these kinds of things which makes it much much more tiring to process the information that's coming off the screen so I think it's more tiring and if it's not organized properly if the etiquette isn't quite right it can be very very imposing because it happens to you you don't really get the sense that you are doing anything for it or to it.
0: So this idea of being able to choose your social behavior is really important. I'm I'm sharing the poll results here. Mm. So that second question was in an office several times a week and working from home uh, part-time in an office once per week and working from home have come out really ahead of Mm. um, any other choice. So this idea that we do want to come together, but not every day.
1: Mm. It's very interesting. Um, Some friends of mine did an experiment in the States with actually a sort of precursor of Zoom. Um, for, I won't go into all the technological reasons why, but they I mean, they set up a screen essentially over the water cooler. And so when you went to the water cooler and had your water cooler chat, which are, is very popular over there, actually you could be, on the screen, would be somebody in California. And so you could have your water cooler chat with somebody in, in California. The sort of really informality of, oh, you know, did you see so-and-so on the television last night? All that sort of stuff. The thing that made it more complex was that, New York and California in different time zones.
0: So there's no one at the water cooler. <laughs> so
1: only, well, only at certain times a day. And so that was a bit, bit of an interesting thing. And we are actually looking at using this kind of technology for doing simultaneous performance in different places at the same time. Um, where we can actually take advantage of that in, in dramatic and artistic form that somebody at the same time is in the morning as somebody else in the evening. And how do we create add that into a play and have that interaction going on at the same time? we're doing that with some colleagues in France.
0: Well, if you have a look at the shop one. I don't know if you've scrolled up and you've had a chance to have a look. Yeah. But
1: Yeah, I need Yeah.
0: Overwhelmingly, people would like uh, an independent food shop or an off-license within a small walking distance. Yep. Bakery's not as important as a cafe. Yep. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Cafe's interesting. I mean, I think um, that the photograph I showed of, of Copenhagen, um, the people just sort of sitting on windowsills and just chatting, wasn't particularly a cafe there. Um, and I think, I think we can... Uh, it's one of the uses of widening the street space for people is that things like cafes can can actually leak into the street a lot more. And um, and that becomes then a kind of social space that it does. So I think I'm not surprised that cafes uh, score quite highly. Um, and I think maybe if, if if we can make them more informal in a way, it's slightly difficult, um, I think that could actually be a, a very popular thing to do. I think the independent food shop doesn't surprise me at all um, I think that's that's been the, the the nub of a lot of communities for many 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 years and it has I think increased maybe um, in recent years um, where I live there's there is an independent food shop which sort of sells lots of everything is very responsive to its customers and everything next door a few years ago arrived Tesco um, and uh, they, the shop was terrified that Tesco would actually take all its trade away but actually what's happened is that the people who go to that shop still go to the shop because they want to support the community and people do go to Tesco so they'll go to Tesco's for some things but actually Tesco's has never really taken off being fairly basic stuff. The, the, this shop has much more interesting things and it has a community of people who uh, who support the community by supporting the local shop as opposed to the national supermarket chain um so i think that's that's an interesting one um and i so i think those kind of things there's a sort of mix of being a local business and a a member of the community has been there for a long time the idea of a cafe actually that shop does have a little coffee bar um and uh the sense of a bakery is actually quite i think quite quite an interesting one it doesn't have to be bread shops but you can see that for example um the diy shop doesn't do very well it doesn't doesn't. the street market uh, does, does a lot better. Um, and if the street market is a, is a really thriving street market with a good mix of things, so it's not just buying cheese or flowers or something, but also maybe bits of hardware, bits of uh, bric-a-brac or whatever, getting the mix in the street market is really important because it, people have mixed needs and the street market is one potential Way of actually being able to sell that, and it's in a very and and also characterized by interpersonal interactions. Um, That's the thing that kind of drives the street market. is is It's not like just pulling something off a shelf in a in a supermarket. It's actually having a conversation with somebody, deciding which apple you're going to buy. Those sorts of things is what goes on there, and that, to a certain extent, happens in the independent food shop. So I find this very encouraging, actually.
0: So uh, we've got a real challenge here because there's a lot of really good questions. Um, I'm going to pick off the really easy one. How many people responded to the poll? I stopped the poll at 285 respondents, um, but there were 340, 350 people um, here at uh, peak time. Um, So uh, in terms of, there's a few questions around proxemics. Um, so I'm going to try to group those for you. One is, is there a difference between how young people and older people, um, uh, I guess it says here, a difference in brain processing or proxem- observed differences in proxemics depending on the age group?
1: Okay. This is um, very difficult to establish until um, a few months ago um, or about a year ago. Um, when some new technology came in for looking at, uh, for being able uh, to do brain scanning while people were doing things. So brain scanning usually means going into a very n- huge, noisy, claustrophobic machine in a hospital. Um, and uh, but in the last couple of years, as a technology has come out which uses light to scan the brain, and you wear a hat like a helmet, um, and we can you can then be doing things. Uh, walking around, having conversations, and watching uh, plays and things like that with this hat on, um, and you can we can then measure we can then see what your brain how your brain is responding. Now my uh, sets of these things we have some of these in the laboratory. They arrived the day before the lockdown. They are now sitting in a very big brown box inside the laboratory, and I'm not allowed to go in there to to look <laughs> at them. Um, but that is very much what we want to be able to do. And that is one of the really core questions to, to ask. Is there a difference in the way that the brain is responding according to age group to these kinds of things? Absolutely fundamental to know. And I'm very, very interested to see that.
0: There are a few questions around design. I mean, there are lots of questions around design and and it's going to be a challenge to answer all of them. But I think one of the things that's been asked and pointed to in a couple of the questions is around this idea of you talked about um, how people arrange themselves in thriving public spaces but why are some of them um sterile or this kind of you know sterility what causes that and often it can be in in very new spaces um where people are are complaining that they are over they use words like overdesign. um they use words like sterile they use words like inhospitable and some of these are very very expensive, newly designed, uncreated spaces. So, what's happening there?
1: It's. Um, I think. I think it's because um, people need to feel that it's theirs. Um, that's something which I think comes across quite strongly in the survey we've done. That that they they need to kind of feel that it's it's theirs. If you've got something which is super over designed, so you have to sit in that chair, then. Um, then that doesn't work. There's a very famous, for those of you in the field, you'll, you'll probably recognize this, but um, Holly White in, in, again, in New York, in the 1980s. And he filmed people, like he'd be arrested if he did it now, but, but he filmed people just doing stuff in the city. And one of the things that, one of the sequences that he shows, or showed was a woman uh, arriving at the park in lunchtime to have lunch. And... and the woman arrives, an empty chair. So she goes to this empty chair, and the first thing she does is she moves it, and then she moves it again, and so, I think she moves it three or four different times, and she ends up sitting on it in the final place that she chose, which is identical to the place it was at first. And and because you can see that on the on the film, it's very very interesting. And the point there is what she's actually done is that she has taken ownership of that space. It's her chair for that period that she's having lunch. It's her chair. It's not the chair that somebody else left that she sat in, and I think there is a very strong sense of that importance of that sense of loosely called ownership. Um, that's what makes that a place for her. Now, if you if you design a place, you need to enable people to feel that they can make it theirs. So it's always a good sign, I think, when you see a place. It might have lots of very formal benches and things to sit on but you'll find somebody sitting on the ground or sitting on a bollard because actually it's more interesting it's in a better place to see what's going on it's more comfortable possibly um, and they are making that statement that actually they are designing it the The big problem with design is that we think you design something and it's finished but actually especially in the urban um, space case I think You, we, all you do with design is you—it's like pinning the canvas onto the frame, and the people come along and paint. And I think, as in design, we have to realize that actually, what we're designing is the is a blank canvas for people, and maybe the canvas is a little bit uneven here, a bit more absorbent there, and so on. And a and a great artist will take advantage of those things in in the way that they they do make their make their pictures, but. Actually, I think we should see the, the urban space more as um, the, the kind of canvas that the people then feel that they, ha- they can make those changes. And, make, and they will do that generally positively if they do.
0: I am um, looking through these questions and uh, I found that a really uh, beautiful and eloquent response. <laughs> do you have, if you had one piece of advice then to someone setting out to design? Would it be making things movable or more changeable? Or um, how, how would somebody from a first principles uh, approach an unfinished piece of design?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing I'd do is put a hyphen between the E and the S. So it's about D sign. It should feel intuitive to people. Um, and we don't really know what is intuitive to people. Um, because that will change quite a lot over time. But, but actually, the sense that people feel that they, they understand and know the place means that the place has to be laid out in a way that they can know and understand it and maybe challenge it a bit. You know, and, and I think as, as a sort of first place designer, I think I would, I would like to work much more with people in the process of creating it. And one of the things that we can do in Pearl, interestingly, and what we designed it for, was to be able to let people do that, that you could try something out to see if it would work. We could build a street and see what would happen if you did this or that or the other to it. And how would people respond to that? So you can sort of see how the, how the tweaking works before you actually have to go out into the public domain and do it.
0: That's a... Um... That's a nice segue because your laboratory is indoors and one of the questions that's been voted up here is what is the impact of weather on sociality? And obviously we're in the UK, some of your pictures were in very beautiful, warm climates. Um, So uh, is there an impact?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, If you look at Copenhagen in December, January, you will see people in the street cafes sitting in the street and the cafe provides them with a blanket. But they are at the cafe, having coffee outside, snow on the ground, minus something, temperature.
0: So yes and no.
1: So I think if you, if you get the sociality right, we're pretty good at climate as a species.
0: Yeah. So it's about humans naturally wanting to do this. There's yes. a there's a question here about um, the pandemic has made us you know realize that we really value our outdoor spaces. Um, we're also, there's somebody's questioning whether we're going to know what to do with them. Uh, mm. are we going to forget how quickly do humans change? Um, but then also what lessons can we learn, uh, from what, what's just happened and what, what should we ensure that we don't forget as we go back to normality, normality.
1: <laughs> if we go back to it, um, I think there's a massive amount we can learn from this. I think, I think it has shown people that, um, I mean, they may not use this Kind of language, but I think it's showing people that sociality is actually fundamental. And I think um if we can actually retain that uh, sense of sociality, then I think things will be different. We've been talking, I mean, some of the things with with uh, Trans, some of the discussions with Transport for London around, you know, how many people are going to be on a bus. And you know and, and they had this concept that you have a bus, we designed this bus for ninety people, therefore we have to have ninety people on it. Well actually, do you you don 't for most of the time and um, and maybe we should make these kinds of spaces actually better for that kind of experience where if you wish to, and the, having the choice is crucially important, you could be more we could be more um, social in the sense of being able to have those informal interactions, which may be no more than a wave and a greet and nothing more, or they may be a chat or a conversation, but that is a matter of choice and flexibility. Uh, Right now, peak hour bus, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't be able to do that. And maybe we should be thinking about, can we actually use the public transport system as the driver for change in increasing sociality? Because to me, that's a big challenge to do it on public transport. To be social, because
0: you're too intimate.
1: Because, because a person, the, the, the physical footprint of a person is about um, a fifth of a square meter. And actually, um, if, you, uh, if you, London Underground at its peak has about four and a half people per square meter, which is about a fifth of a square meter per person. And, and that, that is a bit scary, right? It so means you're kind of pressed up. But if you go to Beijing, it's eight people per square meter. You're not going to be terrible. You're right inside that intimate space. And if you look at people in those situations, they contort their bodies so much, partly physically to fit in that space, but also to avoid the intimacy of having face-to-face interaction. And they will do almost anything, whether it's a phone or a book or contorting their neck or whatever it is, not to, not to have that, because it's forcing people into that aggressive side of that intimate space. So if we can actually make, the, the public transport system work at much more of a personal space for example that would be a lot better um, and we know also it works more efficiently because if you if you have two people per square meter um, actually the boarding and the lighting is sufficiently fast that you can actually run you, you reduce the amount of time that a train is at a station for example and that means that you can have more trains in the station.
0: So it doesn't mean and giving so you, up on fares, which is why people presumably don't like this idea very much. This,
1: this is, of course, Transport for London's big problem. It's costing them 50 million a week not to take fares. And, um, and, they, and that is a serious issue. Um, I think we can, we can actually make the thing much, much more effective by actually not cramming it full of people. Um, It will work much better without cramming it full of people. Therefore, you can design your system um, to accommodate that. Now, that is much easier with buses than it is with trains um, because of the signaling and things. So actually, I think there is a real opportunity here to redesign buses on the basis of sociality. And that is indeed the kind of thing that we're talking with TFL about.
0: So we just have two minutes left before we're gonna to go to kind of breakout. And I, I wanna get in a couple more questions. So one is can you tell me what antisocial behavior is? <laughs> and um, why why does it happen or do we perceive it to happen?
1: I think it's where people um lose that sense of ownership. So they're trying to establish it. So where they feel that the that the space is 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 not theirs, therefore to make it theirs, they have to do something that confronts that. And therefore that turns into antisocial behavior. Now, antisocial is probably something about, uh, I'm not the sociologist here, but I think it's something who decides what is social behavior um, is a collective kind of grouping. So in some places, some kind of behavior would be deemed to be totally acceptable, which would be deemed to be antisocial somewhere else. so it's a little bit it depends a bit about what the, what the community is. I would suggest that if we improved sociality, you would reduce the amount of antisocial behaviour because the range of behaviours would be much better understood, and therefore people could feel that they could do their own thing in a way that was not actually interfering with the with the sort of social mores of the of the time. So I'm
0: going the quick fire round. What is democratic space?
1: Um, I meant by democratic space, the kind of space in which you do things like vote, uh, where you make um, theoretically democratic decisions. House of Commons is a democratic space that 's what I mean by that, that kind of thing and, but but you know Churchill very famously said um, you know, we we form our spaces and then our spaces uh, we shape our spaces and our, sh- our spaces shape us um, and that 's sort of kind of kind of true, but what causes it to shape them in the way that they are? So the House of Commons is a very dy- you know, dyadic space, two sides, always in argument. Some other democratic spaces are much more, um, lots of people arranged around a circle and things. It's very interesting how those, do they change the form of argument? Um, well, I and guess my question is,
0: do, do they need to be physical? Do you believe we, they need to be physical as opposed to digital, as we see planning going digital and Parliament at different points going digital?
1: I do think there is a value in having physical interaction, because I think the the interaction is much richer, because it's very multisensorial. And we get vision, we get sound, but you get a compressed version of both. And actually a lot of the subtleties that, that register in the pre-conscious brain actually are subtleties that by definition we are completely unaware of. And so and that is what is enabling us to have that conversation in with each other and in society. And in a democratic space, that is really important. I think the House of Commons, the design of the House of Commons, forces that into a sort of football game kind of... Um, uh, response where all you can really do is shout at the out and not actually discuss with them and that is one of the reasons why it falls into such disrepute.
0: Well Nick I think this just leaves me to thank you for a fascinating talk and morning I'm I think the networking session has been opened I've shared the link in the talk for those of you who would like to have a little bit of post-discussion but um, I mean, so wide-ranging, so fascinating. I know there's people on here who want to see the slides. They want to see the recording. I, you're probably going to get some more questions. But, uh, but aside from that, um, thank you very much for everything today.
1: Really, really fascinating. Anybody wants to um, get in touch, uh, my email's on the last slide. So if you get the slides, you'll get the email. And you can, I'm very, very happy to, to talk.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TCMurray.